he liked to hunt and I liked to hunt. And I didn't know that in Southern California you could actually go hunting or you can go pheasant hunting. And I mean, in Pennsylvania, pheasant hunting was all over the place. But here you have to go to special places and there's a farm out in Chino that you can go pheasant hunting. So Bill and I decided to go pheasant hunting and we went up to the farm and I told him, here, you wait by the gate and I'll go up and I'll talk to the farmer and see if it's okay if, if he'll give us permission to hunt on his property. So he waited by the gate and I went up, knocked on the farmer's door, he came out, I said, hey, would you mind, I've got a friend here, we're from Pennsylvania, we really miss going hunting and would it be okay if we go pheasant hunting on your property? He said, yeah, that'd be fine. He said, but you know, there's one thing that I'd really like you to do for me while you're out here today. He said, you see that old gray mare standing out there in the field? I said, yeah. He goes, well, you know, she's really sick and um, would appreciate if you kind of put her to sleep today while you're out there hunting. We can't bring ourselves to do it, and if you do that a favor for us, that'd be great. I said, well, you know, I'm not gonna, I don't feel real comfortable about doing this either, but if it's like the only way we're going to get to hunt on your property, I don't have a problem. <laughs> so, so I said, yeah, I'd appreciate it. So anyway, I went back to the fence and, and where, where Bill was standing, he said, what did he say? I said, I can't believe it. He said, he is the most selfish person that I've ever met. He told us to hit the road. He doesn't care where we're from, and he's not letting anybody, especially people from Pennsylvania, hunt on his property. I said, you know what? I'm really ticked. I got an idea how we can get even with him. So you see that old gray mare standing over there? So I picked up my gun. I aimed it at it. Boom! Shot that old gray mare. And before I turned around, I heard boom, boom. And I turned around, and Bill goes, hey, good shot, Chuck. I got two of his cows. Let's get out of here. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we're just a little too smart for our britches there, you know. And uh, th the thing that's interesting is the Bible has a lot to say about our wisdom. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. All of us, to some degree, think we're pretty smart. And the problem with our wisdom is that the Bible is pretty clear that our wisdom and God's wisdom often are two different things entirely. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we read a passage that Paul begins to write, and if you pick it up at verse 17 in that first chapter, we see that Paul begins to write about God's wisdom. And our problem has been, as we've been going throughout these last couple of sessions, is that God's wisdom is different than our wisdom. And as you look into this particular passage, we see in 1 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 17, listen to the words that Paul writes about wisdom. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should be made void. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know, come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because of the, full, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no one should boast before God. But by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Dropping down to verse 6, he writes, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages of the to the, our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. God has chosen the, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And the bottom line is that God's wisdom is not our wisdom. And the biggest problem with the cross and what Paul is saying is, I'm not here to preach to you in any kind of clever manner. I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm not trying to sell you on anything. All that I'm trying to do is tell you that God says this. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you don't have to do anything else to please God. That's it. And see, the world is confused by that. See, the world has its own wisdom, its own sense of values, and its own sense of priorities. And the world says, well, I think we've got to do these ten things. Oh, and maybe trust in Christ. But we've got to do all these too, because it cannot be enough to simply trust in Christ. That's not enough. And so God is saying, you know what the problem is? That's keeping people from coming to know Christ. Because they can't believe that God would do it all himself. And see, God's wisdom and man's wisdom are on two different planes. And the problem that we have is we either have to believe what God says is true or we continue to go out in, our, in the darkened, darkened minds that we have, excluded from the life of God, because we simply will choose not to believe what he says. And so Paul isn't trying to convince anybody of anything, and I'm not either. I'm not here to be clever or persuade you. All I'm trying to do is just teach you exactly what God has to say. And then we deal with it based on that. And... Uh, Almost a thousand years before this particular time, Solomon argued from the same point, that there is a wisdom that comes from a right relationship with the living God. There is a wisdom that is a gift from God, and there's no way that you can get it in and of yourself. It's nothing that you can gather up on your own. It's something that comes to a person who has a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So the person that's invited him into their heart, God gives us a sense of wisdom that we can't get any other way. And so as we look at what Solomon's trying to say, uh, we begin to take a look at the, the last, well, the last couple of sessions was the value of wisdom which God says is his wisdom, not our wisdom. Not doing it our way, but doing it God's way. And Solomon had a tremendous life to contrast when he did things his way versus when he did things the way God said to do them. And so we're going to pick up. We've already went in depth on the first four. He saw seven advantages or seven advantages to the value of godly wisdom. We went in depth on the first four. We'll conclude the next three this morning. So if you've got your Bibles open, flip it back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we'll pick up where we left off. The fifth advantage that Solomon's going to tell us about is that godly wisdom excels the advice of other people. 
as we take a look at this, look for a moment at, at uh, verses 19 through 22, and we'll pick up there. He says, Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For you likewise have realized that you... For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. He's going to begin to explain to us the value, the wisdom that excels the advice of others. Let me ask you just a very simple question. What's some of the problems that you've encountered as you've gotten, quote, counsel from other people? What's some of the problems that you have when you ask somebody else for advice? Okay. Yeah, they, yeah, they give it to you. <laughs> That's it right there. You ask somebody and they tell you and they'll be happy to tell you. Or oftentimes, the answer that they give you, if you would do what they told you to do, would end up being worse than the problem that you're in right now. For example, one of the stupidest things that I ever heard of, and it came as we were putting together the marriage series last summer, were people that would tell someone whose spouse was guilty of having an affair that the only way that you'll ever be able to deal with it and, and put it to rest, so to speak, is that you need to go out and have one yourself. And then everything's even and it all balances out. And then you won't have this, you know, bitterness and envy. Hey, laugh about it, but that's what's going on in counseling sessions all across our country. And you're right. That counsel, that advice, that direction is going to be worse than the situation that you found yourself in when you walked into the room. So what else happens? You know, another problem with counsel that we get? It becomes outdated. Oops, I made a mistake. Dr. Spock just came out recently, <clears throat> and, and you know what I'm talking about? Dr. Spock came out recently and said, I am so sorry for all of the counsel and advice that I gave the parents 30 years ago because I was wrong and we're reaping the consequences of everything that we sown. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I, somehow, you know, you, you, you can't, it's hard to have a lot of compassion for someone who just screwed up a whole generation because he was a so-called expert in his field. But yet, on the other hand, I can't blame him entirely, and we'll talk a little bit about that, too. See, he comes back and says, oops, I made a boo-boo. Oh, okay, great. Now, the problem is, how, to, how do we avoid listening to counsel like that and end up reaping what we too sow? See, Solomon saw that there was a problem with counsel that we get from other people, and he was very clear about it. And if you look at verse 20, he begins to tell us what it is. See, in verse 20, he says this. Hey, you know what? Here's one problem, folks. There isn't a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. You see what he's saying? Are you listening at all? What he's saying is, hey, if you're going to get counsel from somebody else, let me just tell you something. Godly wisdom is better than the counsel of other people. And you know why? Because we are not immune to sinning. There is not a person in this room who continually does what is good that if I came to you and you gave me counsel, that I'd just take a carte blanche and say, oh, thank you very much because who you are. Isn't it amazing? Now, don't be misunderstood. We need to seek counsel, but the point that he's making is, hey, wisdom excels the advice of other people because other people are prone to making errors when they give you counsel. Can godly men and women give ungodly counsel? Can they? All right, now let me ask you. This, isn't, this, is, the, this is a no-brainer session, okay? So, you know, everyone should feel comfortable. Um, <laughs> 
but if you go, but, but, if, but if you go, and uh, well, we can, it could be how deep you want it to be. <laughs> Let's put it this way. But if you go and you go seek counsel from somebody or somebody comes to seek counsel from you, how can you be sure that what they're telling you is good or not? Okay, look at, turn to Matthew chapter 16. This is the greatest example of a godly man whose brains were checked out for the afternoon. Matthew 6, and when I say that, because you know what, sometimes my brain's checked out every now and then. I don't know, how about you? Do you ever have those days where you just, it's a kind of a no-brainer kind of day? And somebody would ask you something, you just say something. Why? Because I don't really want to get into it, and I'm kind of tired, and I'll just, if this will work, I'll just blow you by with this one, and we'll move on. See, and that's what Solomon was warning us about. There are, there are times where we don't have, we have no-brainer days. And, and uh, Peter was having a no-brainer day on, in Matthew 16. Look at verse 13. Now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He began, be, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He said, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and that the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Messiah. Okay, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, that he must be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now Peter took him aside because he was, he was feeling pretty good about himself. I'm sure he was on a roll. Do you ever get to that point? You get an answer right and you think, hey, you know what? I know everything now. I answered that last one and I can answer all of them. So Jesus was telling him, hey, this is what was coming up. This is what the plan of God is in the future here. want to let you know so you're prepared about it, so you don't get all shook up about it. God's still in control and this is the way it's going to be. And they're going to kill me, but on the third day I'm going to be raised up and that's all the plan of God. So, so Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. He said, hey, wait a minute. God forbid it, Lord. This isn't going to happen to you. No way. Look what Jesus did. He turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you're not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. What was the problem with Peter's counsel? Can't get any clearer than this. What was the problem with Peter's counsel? Who was he thinking of? Himself. Now here, wouldn't this be great? Now most of us aren't as obnoxious as I am, but I've thought about this on occasions as I was studying this. I thought, could you imagine you go to somebody and, and you, got some, you, you want to get some counsel. You say, hey, here's what's going on. What do you think? Or what should I do? Or give me some feedback. And they tell you something that you know contradicts the Word of God. Wouldn't it be great? Would this catch him off guard? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> what's your problem? I mean, gee whiz, I come to you for counsel. I didn't come to you to hear how stupid you are. You know what I mean? Wouldn't that be great? I'll tell you what, next time that person was asked something, you think they'd stop and consider what maybe the Bible has to say about it? There's an idea. Man, would that be great? That'd be wonderful. You, you wouldn't have a whole lot of people who would be excited to see you approach them. <laughs> but that's the way it works. Flip ahead to Acts chapter 17. Look at this for a minute. So you know our biggest problem is that, it, listen to me as you're flipping here, 
You know what the biggest problem is? You want to hear what you want to hear. That's the biggest problem. You don't want to hear what God has to say. You don't want to hear what God's point of view is. You don't want to hear what God would like you to do in that situation. What you want to hear is what you want to do. There's a problem there. So what you'll do is you'll bounce around like a, a, a ping pong ball to find the dumbest possible person. And if, and if you were that person they stopped at last after knowing they've been bouncing all around and you thought you hit it on the head, then, then you need hit on the head because it's pretty obvious that there's a problem that you're having there. Acts chapter 17. I love this because here is the only way every bit of counsel you get and every bit of counsel you give, you better funnel it through the Word of God. Hey, you know what's wonderful about it? You never have to apologize 30 years later for giving bad advice. You don't have to apologize next week. You don't have to say, oh, you know what, man, I messed up. I'm sorry I, I, I told you that because, boy, that sure messed up your life even worse than it was, didn't it? No. But, uh, hey, you know, I'm sorry. See, the problem is, Acts chapter 17, now look at this for a moment and pick it up at verse 10. It says, And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. You know what's wonderful? Verse 12, many of them therefore believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. You know what the most amazing thing is? If you stick to the text and you stick to the word of God, that God's word doesn't go out empty, that it always returns with fruit. And if you're going to counsel somebody and you counsel them from the word of God and that person's convicted by the Holy Spirit in their life to begin to apply it, that you never will have to worry about apologizing ever in your life. I can stand here with great confidence and tell you exactly what the Bible says, and I'm not ever going to worry about whether it's going to turn out right or wrong. That's just the way it is. It's God's program, and it's always right. Where I get in trouble is where I go off on what I think. Well, you know, this is what I think you should do. Well, based on what? Well, I don't know. Based on, I don't like the person you're talking about. <laughs> or based on, I don't know why. You know what? I don't know, always know what my motives are. The only way that I can be sure that what I say is true is by going to the Word of God and examining a scripture to find out if that is indeed what God has to say. How do you handle it when you're having a problem with somebody? Well, here's what I do. I don't care what you do. Give me a chapter. Give me a verse. Tell me what God has to say about it. How should I handle this? Oh, you got your rights, man. Oh, really? Show me that proverb. Where's that one written? You got your rights, man. Um, I, you can't even find that one in the Living Bible. So, you know what I'm saying? I mean, there, it's not there. You know, see, that's our biggest problem. And let me tell you, and, and, and I'm going to indict many of us in here, but you know what, why they were more noble-minded, the Bereans and the Thessalonians? Because they examined the Scripture daily with great eagerness. You know the biggest problem with us as Christians today? We're the laziest people you ever want to meet. If you would examine the scripture daily with great eagerness, as, as, as eagerly as you brush your teeth and comb your hair and put on deodorant every day, you and I would have a lot less problems in our life because we'd be in tune to what God's interests are instead of our own. See, that's the way it is. I mean, and, and what's so sad is that, you know, we can leave a Bible here in a seat and no one misses it and you don't miss it until next week because you don't have anything to save your place anymore. See? I, and I, you know, I can't get any more obnoxious than that, can I? <laughs> but, but that's okay. That's the way it is. 
You want to know why you pray to bum advice? Because you don't know the word. You want to know why you say stupid things? Because you don't know the word. And you know why Solomon said wisdom excels the advice of others? Because all of us are prone to sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Proverbs 29 says, who, who, who can say I've cleansed my own heart? Psalm 149 says, hey, you know what? In, in, in thy perspective, O God, there is none that are righteous. All of us have sin nature that causes us to stumble. Even though we're saved, even though we've invited Christ in our life, even though there's a place reserved for us in heaven, it's there, it ain't going to change, it's always going to be there. But the problem is, unless we're tuned into the Word of God on a daily basis, we are subject to take stupid advice and we are prone to give it. We need to get into the Word, people. It's the only thing that's going to set us straight. Solomon knew that, and that's what he said. But he said, there's also a second problem. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 again. First problem is that the ability of others to give good advice is uh, restricted or hindered by sin in their life. We're not always going to tell people the right thing according to God's perspective. We may tell them what we feel. We may tell them what they want to hear. But that doesn't mean that's what God says. The second thing is, the attitude of other people is not always right. Now, there's a shock for you, huh? That one will catch you off guard. Look at this. Ecclesiastes 7 again, picking it up at verse 21. You know what he says? Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, lest you hear your servant cursing you. You know what he says? Hey, man, don't take everything so serious. How many of you love to be criticized? You live for it. I live for it. How many of you live to be criticized? Man, how many of you hate being criticized? How many of you actually take it serious when you're criticized? How many of you are brain dead this morning? I mean, when I'm raising my hand here, follow the gestures for a moment. If the hand goes up, there's a clue, okay? Raise the old hands. How many of you hate being criticized? There we go. How many of you take it serious? How many of you take it too serious? All right, there we go. Now the question is, look what he says. Don't take it too serious. You know what he says? Lest you hear your servant cursing. Let's just take a look at this for a moment because he says, lest you hear your servant cursing. It is referring to someone who knows you pretty well. Maybe it's a fellow employee. Maybe it's uh, the, um, your employer. Or maybe, you know, you're the employee who takes it too serious or whatever when you're criticized by somebody. The point is that all of us have people in our life, maybe it's a friend, who are close to us who can tend to be very critical of things that we do and things that we say. And he's warning us about listening to the criticism of the people who are closest around us. Now, if you don't like to live with criticism, and many of us be, begin to be paralyzed in our lives because we're afraid to be criticized. We become frozen in our actions because if I do this, they'll say this. If I do that, they'll say this. I, you know what I'll do? I won't do anything. I'll just stand here and look like this. And if they're real critical, they'll say, boy, you look stupid standing there like that. You know what I'm saying? You know, I'll tell you what, I, I'm not real crazy about criticism doesn't make my day doesn't even excite me and as a result I know what it's like to be criticized and to be frozen and not want to do something that you should do because I'm afraid what people say I'm afraid what people think and you know why I know that because I've already thought most of those things through myself I'm probably my my own worst critic and when somebody brings something to my attention and they criticize me or they stick the knife in me I've already been doing that probably for three days beforehand and all they got to do was finish me off. So, 
<clears throat> I'm beginning to learn, and I read a passage like this and it helps me keep it in focus, but I'm beginning to learn this, that guess what? Not everything that's said should be taken seriously. I like an old southern, old southern expression that says, when a mule kicks you, just consider the source. <laughs> like that? I like that. So I guess the point is, when is a mule worth worrying about? See, and, and here's why. Some of us are so afraid to be criticized that we don't do what God wants us to do because we fear the criticism. J. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, he writes how to handle criticism. He wrote this. What leader or preacher does not desire to be popular with his constituency? Certainly there's no virtue in unpopularity, but popularity can be purchased at too high a price. Jesus made this crystal clear when he said, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. He says, and he expressed the complimentary truth when he said, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. <clears throat> he goes on to quote from a book that Helmut Thelke writes. It's uh, Encounter with Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he was in his 20s, had hundreds of people lined up outside of his church in England in snowstorms and blizzards just to wait to hear him preach. He was highly visible in his 20s, and as a result, he was also highly criticized as any visible person is. And he wrote what it was like to handle criticism. He said, success exposes a man to the pressure of people and thus tempts him to hold on to his gains by means of fleshly methods and practices and to let himself be ruled wholly by the dictatorial demands of incessant expansion. Success can go to my head and will unless I remember that it is God who accomplishes the work that he can continue to do so without my help, and that he will be able to make out with other means whenever he cuts me down to size. See, <clears throat> the point that he's making is, and one that I'll, I just get real personal about, and that is, my greatest fear is that someday I'll have some credibility as a speaker and as a teacher. I'll have a little gray in my temples, and people won't walk up to me anymore like they did this past week, and I met somebody for the first time who had heard of who I was and said, well, gee, I thought you were a lot older than this. And I, you know, and I thought, and I didn't say anything because I am learning discretion. Um, <clears throat> but I thought, oh, okay, if I was much older than this, then you wouldn't have been stumped by what you saw. As if somehow wisdom comes by the graying of the temples. And see, the problem is that many of us, when we get so-called credibility, then we begin to discount the message and we begin to give credit to the messenger. And so right now, I'm an, an, an enigma for many of you who can't figure out anything about me. And I like that because until I have credibility, you're forced dealing with the message and you don't get too hung up on the messenger. And that's a wonderful position to be in. The older that I get, I'll probably not be able to teach anymore because I just realized that that's a very dangerous position to be in once you start to get credibility. See, and, and um, just this little, just a personal insights this morning, so just for all of you who can't figure me out. <clears throat> but there isn't a time where I don't teach or preach that I'll just say a simple prayer. And that's a prayer that I stole from John the Baptist. All my best stuff stolen right out of here. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. But you know what he said when he saw Jesus coming? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. My prayer every time that I get up is that when you leave here, you see Jesus more clearly than when you came in. And you don't even remember who he was that spoke. 
I don't remember who the guy was, but I remember what God tried to teach me through him. See, and that's the key. And you know what's so wonderful about it? If I keep that in focus, I don't really care a whole bunch what you say as far as criticizing me for whatever I do and how I do it. But if I know this, that if you see Jesus more clearly when you leave than when you came in, then I'm not going to take too seriously the words of my critics. And if you do the same thing, you're standing on pretty solid ground. Let me just give you a plan how to handle criticism. I'm going to kind of digress for a second, go off in a different direction. But I want to use this because there are many of us who are handicapped at serving God because we fear the criticism of other people. Basically, here it is in a nutshell. Are you ready? And maybe this will help you remember it. Plan. P-L-A-N. Plan. Okay, this is going to be one that all of us should be able to figure out and as we leave here, be able to do it. Plan. You want a plan to handle criticism? You need to have a plan to handle criticism. Are you ready? You know what it is? Plan. P. In the book of Exodus, we find that Moses was, was criticized for everything that he did. And you'll read that the people murmured and grumbled and complained against them. And the murmuring that they did was a hostile attack against his leadership and everything that he did. And you know what he was trying to do? Only what God told him to do. God says, hey, Moses, I want you to set my, leave my people out of Egypt. And you know what Moses said? He goes, who am I to do this? I can't even do this. I mean, why are you picking me? Don't you have anybody else you can choose? And you know why God chose him? Because Moses realized he was an inadequate in and of himself. So he was the greatest person that, that God could ever use. The person who believes that they're inadequate in and of themselves are the people that God can shine through very clearly. They're the people that Jesus is clearly seen through rather than those who are adequate, educated, and know that they got their act together. So he chose Moses. Moses was a perfectly qualified candidate. Now, if he was filling out a resume and you were one of the people on the board that were going to interview him, you probably would have turned him down. But see, God's chosen the foolish things of the world that can find the wise. So he said, this is perfect, Moses. You're not, no one will ever picture you being able to do this. You're going to do it. So the people murmured and complained against him all throughout the book of Exodus and all throughout the book of Numbers. And you know what? The interesting thing was, he, he had just led him out of the wilderness. And in Exodus 15, it said this, And then they came to Merah. They could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. It means bitterness. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, Hey, hey, man, what are we supposed to drink? Now, he just let them out of Egypt. The first thing that they do is rip them apart because he didn't provide water for them, too. And now, I don't know about you, but what's the first response when you're criticized? Don't you want to defend yourself? It's like getting poked in the eye. The first thing you want to do is kind of flinch back, or it's like talking to an Italian with a knife. I mean... <laughs> You know, hey, hey, what's that? Hey, what's this? hey, hey. You know, you just, kind of, you just want to kind of get out of the way. But you know what he did? Here's what Moses did. He said, then he cried out to the Lord. See, Moses' mind was always on God because he knew he wasn't qualified to be pulling this off on his own. So he was in constant communication with God the whole process. Five other times the same thing happened. But you know how he handled criticism? P, plan. Want a plan for handle criticism? Every one of us in here is subject to criticism. P is for prayer. P is for prayer. The plan to handle criticism begins with prayer. You're getting ripped apart. You're getting torn to shreds. Before you say anything, before you do anything, before you defend yourself, which is your natural response, before you do any of that, then you pray and you ask God to show you what he's trying to teach you through what's going on. Pray, Lord, I don't know what this is all about. And, and, and uh, I'm frustrated, I'm upset, I don't know how to handle it. Hey, whatever is bugging you, then you just tell him and you pray. 
You know, Nehemiah in chapter 4 is, is rebuilding the wall. He had criticism all the time, everything that he was doing. All he was trying to do was God's, what God told him to do. And you know the first thing he did was? He turned to God and he prayed. Pray is the greatest weapon that you and I will have against our critics. Pray. Jesus said it best. He said, hey, you know what? Pray for those who persecute you. You pray for them. The second thing is, if P is for prayer, and we're talking about a plan, L is for listen and learn. Listen and learn. You can't learn anything if you begin to become quite defensive about your criticism. You got to listen and learn. Hey, I got people and, and, and that come to me, and I'll listen to what they have to say because they have a valid point of reference and because they care about me enough that they're willing to confront. We always got to be at a point in our life where we're willing to listen to what people have to say. We have to listen and to learn. Jethro came to Moses and said, hey, you know what? The way that you're trying to judge these people, you're trying to do it all yourself. So why don't we do it this way? Let's get 70 elders of the people and let's set them up as judges and let's funnel things through and let, let them take some of these cases and you take some of the other cases. And you know what, what he did? Moses didn't say, hey, but God chose me. He didn't choose them. You know what he did? He says he listened to Jethro and he did it that way. Moses was willing to listen. You know why Moses was willing to listen? It all goes back to the foundation. Because Moses knew he was inadequate. Moses knew he wasn't perfect. Moses knew he needed all the help he can get. Why don't you listen to criticism? Pride. I got it together. I know it all. Don't tell me. Who do you think you are? You pinhead. And, and, and then it's like, and then, and then, and then, yeah, 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 look at your life. You know? And you walk away mumbling and complaining because somebody was willing to confront you. Hey, if it's a mule who's kicking, consider the source. But if it's somebody who genuinely is concerned about you and they approach you, then we have to learn to listen. P is for what? Prayer. L is for what? Listen and learn. And A, as we go through this process, is answer positively. Answer positively. The Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath. If somebody criticizes you in anger and they're upset with you, the Bible says that a gentle answer will turn away wrath. The first thing that we need to do is to go to them and just say, hey, you know what? Um, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that what, what I did upset you. I didn't realize what I said offended you. Um, you know, and, and diffuse the anger right away. Diffuse the anger. And the second element of a positive response is be sure that you understood what the critic is saying. Oh, I'm sorry. I must not have heard you right. Could you repeat that for me? You know what's an amazing thing? If you're anybody here in a service-related type business where you got people calling and screaming at you and complaining over the phone and just telling you how, how wonderful it is, well, we're in the con contracting business, heating and air conditioning, and people get really nasty when they buy a heating and air conditioning system and they think it should cool you in the summertime and it's not working. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what their problem is. I don't know what the deal is. But here's, here's what generally happens when they call a service department. My air conditioning's not working. I paid $500 trillion for this house. Oh, I'm sorry. Could you, can you repeat that for me? My air conditioning not working. I paid $5 million for this house. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Um, did you want us to fix your air conditioning system, or do you have a problem making your house payment? <laughs> you know, what are you really upset about here? You know what I mean? But if you get the person to, to repeat what they just said, and they realize what they said was really kind of a bozo thing to say, but you don't do it in an, in an accusatory manner, but you just say, Would you, I'm sorry, could you please repeat that? Won't they relent? They'll back down. 
See, and they have to because they realize what they just said was a no-brainer, so they don't want to continue <laughs> to look like that. And so you just say, hey, would you mind? I'm sorry, could you just repeat what you just said? A third factor in answering positively is that uh, you immediately agree as soon as possible with the things that are right. You know what? You, you really shouldn't have done that. Man, you know what? That's been bothering me too, and I'm glad you brought it to my attention. That was a dumb thing that I did. And I'm really sorry if you were offended by it. Or, you know what? I don't think you should have said that. Man, you know what? As soon as I said it, I knew I shouldn't have said it. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. And every time I look out and I see you, I'll, I'll, I'll just thank God that you had enough guts to come and talk to me about it. See? Answer positively. You know, that's a way to handle criticism. And the fourth thing is that, hey, you know what? Can you help me? Is there some way that I could do it differently next time? And you know what? You'll begin to flush out who the mules are in a hurry. Because the mule is going to keep ripping you apart because they just don't like you. Not because they care about you. Not because they want to see you grow. Not because they want to see you get better at whatever it is that you're doing. A mule just wants to kick you in the teeth. And you consider the source. But a person who genuinely cares, if somebody says to me, boy, you know what, you shouldn't have done it this way. Hey, you know what? I agree with you. How do you think I should do it next time? Well, here's what I think. Oh, great. And you know what? You turn an absolutely potential negative situation into one that will be pleasing to God and also develop a closer relationship with that person that you're dealing with. Hey, and the, and the best thing that happened with the critic is that you just sit down and you can pray together afterwards. Hey, you know what? Let's just ask God to bless this plan that we have or just to bless our friendship or the fact you had enough courage to confront me. This is the greatest thing in the world. P is for what? Prayer. L is for what? A is for what? Answer positively. Answer positively. And the last thing is, and probably the most, the, the, the thing that encourages people to criticize one another more than anything else is that we need to note the critic's need. You know what's amazing? That most people who criticize us are just trying to cover themselves. There's some hurts in their life. There's a smoke screen they're trying to throw out. They feel either inadequate with themselves, they have low sense of self-esteem, and they're just trying to get everybody else down to the same plane. And if we can note the need, you can begin to see through the criticism, the cutting edge of criticism. You can set it aside and you can say, Lord, help me to see what's really hurting this person. I need to know because I hope that you can use me to minister to them and help them in whatever it is they're going through. Help me to note their need. They've got a need. And they're hurting, and I need to know what it is. And you know what? We compound their need by attacking them in return when they attack us. You know, what's hard, though, is we have to trust God that this is the right thing to do. You know, Moses did this continually. He was torn apart, ripped apart. His family members ripped him apart. And just when God was so sick of the whole nation, God told Moses, Hey, step aside. I'm going to destroy all of them. They're all getting me sick. You know what Moses did? He ran to the sanctuary of God and he offered a sacrifice for the needs of the people. And you know what God did? He relented in what he could have done. Man, you know what? Wouldn't that be wonderful if you got a critic in your life that you can just go to God and just pray for that critic? That it's obvious they've got some hurts in their life, they've got some needs, and God, help me identify them and use me in their life. you got a plan the next time you're criticized. P is for what? Prayer. L is for? A is for, and N is, note the critic's need. Man, wisdom gives us the ability to see life with rare, rare objectivity and to handle life with the rare stability that, that only God knows. 
and it also excels the advice of others. Real quick, let me give you the last two things that Solomon says is the value of wisdom. And turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, or if you're there, just pick it up with me. Ecclesiastes 7, we see this. Wisdom enables us to escape the trap of sin and our inability to understand things by ourselves. There are a lot of things in life that you and I will never understand. There are a lot of things that we'll never understand, and there's a problem with human understanding. And the first thing that he tells us is that it, dis it discovers its own limitations. Look at verse 23 and 24. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I'll be wise, but you know what? It was far from me. It was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? You know what he said? Hey, you know what? I don't understand everything. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived on the face of the earth, you know what his conclusion is? There are some things that I can't understand. I just don't understand it. God does things a certain way. I don't understand it. But it's the way God does it. And I'm willing to listen. See, wisdom enables us to escape the trap of sin and our inability to understand things by ourselves. He discovered it had limitations. Guess what? I still can't figure out a lot of stuff. You know what? This is the, this is, this is the dumbest thing that anybody can ever say about another person. You know what? My husband just doesn't understand me. Oh, really? Let me ask you this. Do you understand you? No. Well, then, hey, give the guy a break. You know, don't say, say well, Linda just doesn't understand me. Hey, I don't understand me, okay? Well, why would I pawn it off on her? You know what Solomon said? I don't understand me. I don't understand a whole bunch of things. But I know that when I'm tuned in to God, I have tremendous wisdom on how to handle stuff. He also says that it desires to know the wrong things. You know what our biggest problem is? Take a look at what he says in verse 25. He says, you know what? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolish of madness. You know what? We are tempted to know things that God does not want us to know. That's human wisdom. Human wisdom is the foolishness that says, hey, you know what? Let them have sex before they're married. Let them discover what it's all about. Then they'll be in a better position to make some decisions when it's time to get married. Human wisdom says, let them use drugs. Let them drink. It's okay. Just so that somebody can drive them home. That's not a bad. Let them discover it. Human wisdom says, hey, go ahead and let them steal, let them cheat, let them lie, and then when they get caught, they'll realize that's not the way to go. Go ahead and do it. God's wisdom says, hey, I'll tell you everything you want to know about sin, but you don't have to discover it, any of it on your own. I've put it all in written form for you. I've taken the time to do it. It took 1,500 years to put this together. There are 66 books. I used 40 different people. My spirit moved through these men so that they can tell you everything I want you to know about life. You don't have to do it on your own. Human wisdom says, Try it, experience it yourself. God says, don't you dare. You read what i got to say, and then you trust me. See, that's the problem, is that we want to discover all these things on our own. And guess what? Solomon found that out real quick. And he found out also that it disappoints us. Whatever we learn always is disappointing. It's always better. It seems like it's going to be much better than it ever is. Look in verse 26. He said, I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are changed. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. You know what Solomon wanted to discover? How wonderful sex was. Did you know that? That's what he wanted to discover. And he had 700 concubines and 300 wives. The guy was a sexual athlete. <laughs> 
I mean, stop and think about it for a minute. A thousand babes. And you know what he found out? That it wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And there isn't a guy in the world that doesn't think along those lines at some point. You know what I mean? Let's be honest about it. And I'm just going to tell you what God has to say and what Solomon discovered. And he said, you know what? That temptation to do those things that aren't pleasing to God, the consequences are always more long-term than the temporary pleasure that you may get. You know what he found out? Man, there's a woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. And if you read Proverbs 5, you'll find out that the adulterous woman's lips drip with honey. But you know what? In the end, her, her, her ways lead to his feet down to Sheol. They'll lead you to death, man. They'll ruin your relationship. They'll ruin a marriage. They'll ruin your life. They'll ruin your business. They'll ruin everything quicker than anything else. And you know why? Because he wanted to discover it on his own. And God said, hey, man, I told you a long time ago not to multiply wives. I told you not to do that. And yet you did it, and you're paying the price. But you know what he says? But one who is pleasing to God will escape from her chains. He couldn't find, he couldn't find a good woman the way that he was going about it. And he had a thousand to choose from. And he couldn't find one because God wouldn't honor his choice-making process. So wisdom enables us to escape the trap of sin and our inability to understand things by ourselves. And the last thing is that Wisdom also enables us to discover and experience what God can do. And with this, we'll close. He said the first thing is that there's a realization that some things are hard to explain. Man, God does things His way, and I don't understand it all the time, but all I know is what He says, and I'll trust Him for it. Behold, I've discovered in verse 27 that adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I'm still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I still have not found one woman. You know what he said? Man, the thing I don't understand is I had a thousand women to choose from, and I don't understand how I couldn't come away with one good one. He said, that doesn't make any sense to me. And you know what's amazing to me? Listen to the talk show hosts and listen to all the garbage that's on TV, and I want somebody to explain this one thing. If you've got two people who are monogamous that have sex, I don't care how they do it, what mannerisms they use, and if they do it just the two of them, they don't introduce anybody else into the situation anywhere along the line, then they will not contract a venereal disease and they will not be subject to AIDS from a sexually transmitted point of view. I'm not talking blood transfusion or things, but just from a sexually transmitted point of view, they will not contract any venereal disease or AIDS. Now, I want somebody on TV to answer why that is. I want them to answer it. You know what? They can't answer it. And you know why? Solomon says the same thing. There are some things that God has designed I can't understand and I can't explain. I can't explain why two people can have sex for 50 years in their marriage, not outside of marriage, never have a contracted uh, venereal disease, never acquire any kind of AIDS, and they can be doing the same thing that somebody else is doing in the room next door, the exact same way, the exact amount of minutes, whatever it is. And, it's, and guess what? And they're in a high-risk group. Why is that? Solomon said, hey, man, you know why it is? I don't know why it is. Because that's the way God does things. That's great. He also says that, you know what? There's a recognition of God's work and man's problem. Our problem is, guess what? Verse 29, Behold, I found only this. God men made men upright, but they sought out many devices. God made us upright. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, man, it was perfect everything they did. Everything they were going to do is perfect. They were going to have children. They were going to multiply. They were going to replenish the earth. They were going to be in authority over the earth. Everything was perfect. But you know what? He found out the same thing Solomon said about every one of us, that our desire is to do things opposite of what God wants us to do. See, God made men upright, and man has turned away from God. Man is in rebellion of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all turned from the living God. 
to do our own thing. He said, and the last thing is this, the result of having God's wisdom is a wonderful thing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. Do you want to see someone with, with a, a beaming expression on their face? You want to see somebody that's different than the world in which we live? You want to see somebody that has peace in their eyes and a glow about their framework that God has put them in? Then I'll show you a person who, number one, knows the living God and has trusted in Jesus Christ. There's a countenance about them that's different than the world around them. And the second thing is, and that person's walking in obedience with Him. They're different. Christians are different. There's, a, there's an expression on their face. There's a countenance that's different. There's an attitude that's different. There's love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness. There, there's, there's outward expressions of something that's different in their life. And when they're walking with God, then they're enjoying life. 1 Corinthians 1.30, I'll close on this. This is what we've talked about. In fact, I used it as an introduction. The good news is that this wisdom is available to every person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We have wisdom that comes from above. 1 Corinthians 1.30, we read this. But God has brought you into union with Christ Jesus. And God has made Christ to be our wisdom. God has made Christ to be our wisdom, and by Him we are put right with God. We became God's holy people, and we are now set free. See, that's what God's wisdom will do. Solomon said it best when he said, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. For this I have also seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, to the person that's good in the sight of God, which is Solomon just said, to the one who's good in God's sight, you'll escape many traps. He has given wisdom and knowledge and joy while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. The question is, do you have the wisdom of God? And the only way you can get it is by asking Jesus Christ into your life and then walking in obedience with Him, following the Word of God, spending time examining it with eagerness and on a daily basis. And when you do that, you got all the wisdom that you'll ever need to live in this world and conduct a life that will be pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity just to look into your word to see the wise counsel that comes from the pages of this print. God, help us to see that apart from you, we're nothing. But in Christ, we have access to the wisdoms of the universe, the wisdom of your ways to know how to conduct ourselves in an unholy world, in an unclean world, in a world that's frankly in rebellion against you. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. You're not, your ways aren't our ways. But because of your grace and your love for each one of us, you have given us access to the throne of your grace. That if we would just trust you and believe you, believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that we're in rebellion against you, that he died for our sins, that if we would just believe that, believe that you on the third day rose him from the dead, which is what we celebrate this week, that it will be a constant reminder of a living God who loves us and cares for us and paid the price for us. God, we just thank you for that. And we just thank you that you've equipped us to live in this world, that we can have wisdom that comes from above. And we just praise you for the results. In Jesus' name, amen.